KBLA Talk 1580. This should be quite an interesting conversation. I'm glad you're here with us. Live with me in studio, uh, the president of something called the 40 Acre Conservation League. She's an award-winning marketing guru, public relations strategist, writer, uh, professional manager in uh, both private and public sectors. And uh, she's been engaged in community government Media relations, crisis communications, events, communications, planning, philanthropy, and so much more. Jade Stevens, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Yeah, thanks for coming in. Uh, We're also being joined on the telephone by uh, the executive director of the California African American Water Education Foundation. That was founded in 2019. Um, He is striving to increase our water IQ. he is also um, the founder and managing partner of Lucian Partners, which is a registered lobbying firm representing clients across the country in front of public agencies, including the California legislature. Um, and he is an attorney. Uh, Daryl Lucian, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for joining us. Okay, so we'll start with you, um, Jade. Just break it down. What is 40 Acres uh, Conservation? What is that? Yeah, so the 40 Acre Conservation League is California's first black-led land conservancy. Uh, We were created with the goal of fostering greater human connections to nature and to increase community support for its protection. Um, In order for that to happen, we think about it like this. One, we want to maximize our exposure to nature and eliminate land use practice land use practices that do not benefit us Um, secondly we want to maximize our participation in outdoor recreation by developing recreational spaces in nature that are inclusive safe and accommodating and three just be honest about the fact that conservation is this really big business and people of color should be able to benefit from that. And so collectively, we refer to that as our three pillars, which is environmental justice, recreational justice, and economic justice. And, you know, it's funny when we think about recreation and the environment, especially when you think environment, a lot of people do think white. When you think Mm -hmm. recreation, we don't necessarily connect the dots with justice so much. I think the Bruce's Beach conversation may have started to change that. Um, but Daryl, Lucian, maybe you can um, make the case for why there is a connection. Well, there's definitely a connection because when you think about the size, um, and I'm going to talk about it a little bit from the water perspective, but when you think about the size of California's outdoor recreation economy, this is a $97 billion market, right? And so the question I think that, uh, Ms. Stevens is probably getting at, and certainly that we get at is, we're a part of this market. The question is, are we consumers or are we on the entrepreneurial side? And so when it comes to recreation, you know, that's, that's, that's one thing that is definitely top of mind. But the other thing that is really important when we think about outdoor recreation, um, we're not necessarily talking about your neighborhood parks. We're talking about (laughs) industries like, you know, the skiing industry. We're talking about, um, we're talking about boating. We're talking about fishing. And so when we think about these industries, 
um, oftentimes what you have to do is you have to go out beyond the city limits to really get into uh, what most folks will, will consider the great outdoors. And when you get into the great outdoors, one of the first things you're, you're likely to run into is a, a Confederate flag or two or something very similar. And so these spaces just haven't been spaces that people of color, specifically African-Americans, have really wanted to, to deal with, right, when they think about recreation and enjoyment um, and relaxation. And so I think that's why these, these two efforts are really intertwined. So, um, Jay Stevens, bring us back to your three pillars again. Yeah, I mean, uh, Daryl, I, I really want to dial in on what you were talking about with recreational justice and um, the idea that we are solely consumers. I mean, this myth has been ongoing that black people don't enjoy the outdoors and that it's hard for us to be imagined in, you know, the mountains hiking or skiing or boating or fishing. But I mean, the reality is, is we've been doing this forever. I mean, for me, when you think about a girl's trip, I'm making plans with my friends to go to the Caribbean, to go to other places, to go whitewater rafting. We're taking pictures on waterfalls like we're out there. Um, but there's this disconnect here in the States in our own backyard that creates this idea of, you know, not feeling welcome and not feeling Yeah, safe. I mean, that's that's the point of us, how we're portrayed as mm -hmm. opposed to our reality. Mm -hmm. You know, how many black uh, bicycle groups and, uh, you know, Me. hiking groups and, <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, I, I'm that girl too. I, I'm not a bicycle person, but I will hike a mountain. Give, give me a mountain, you know, I'll hike it. Uh, that's, that's not the reality. That's the portrayal, right? Right. Um, but so... I guess what, what I'm asking you to connect the dots here, you said you have three pillars um, dealing with conservation, recreation. What's the third one? And uh, you said environmental, recreational, and economic justice. Economic justice. So how is that a land trust? Bring me to the land trust part. Yeah, so I, I think that one thing that comes to mind is when people of color, when we're thinking about black populations, right? Like we're in highly urban areas, we're disconnected from the outdoors. And so this idea of being able to be exposed to the outdoors um, and understanding that we have a claim and stake into it through entrepreneurship like conservation is really how we see the 40 Acre Conserv Conservation League intersecting. It is possible to enjoy the outdoors as a consumer, but there's also mo more ownership when you actually own that land. And so being the first, the 40 Acre Conservation League, to do something like this, we're really hoping to leave a trail for others to imagine themselves in an opportunity to own land as, as we do. And um, when you talk about... Uh when you talk about, you know, ownership in that space, it's, it's interesting that you mentioned conservation as a business. And I'm going to flip this back to you, Daryl, um, because <laughs> water is one of those flashpoints, right? Mm -hmm. Where you have what, what we typically think of as business interests or the needs of big cities and, you know, being able to create new housing, which you can't do if you don't have water for them. And the traditional groups like Sierra Club or whatever that are typically um, blocking those projects or have their own agenda for land use. So, uh, but we, but I don't think of conservation or environmentalism as a business. Why is that wrong? I think it's wrong because when you look at um, all of our water infrastructure um, and where water comes from, specific, and I'll be specific to Los Angeles County. 
Um, we get our water from two places, um, typically. Um, we get it from groundwater, um, or we get it from rivers and mountains uh, across the state. And frankly, across the country, if you consider yeah, how Colorado, right. the Colorado River is um, for our water supply. And so when you think about conservation right now, there's a whole movement uh, behind kind of what you're talking about with the Sierra Club. It's, yeah, we don't, we don't want to build here. We want to protect these, these wolves or these mountains. There's an entire industry that is set up, with, which is the land trust industry, around the protection of resources. Um, and I'm sure Jade could probably share all of the costs and the professionals, the scientists, the engineers um, that they have paid probably just to even get to the point where they are, specifically as it relates to water. One of the biggest things that's extremely important when it comes to water is how we transport water from one area to another. And there are bodies of science, um, engineers, math, the whole nine uh, really involved with that. And so that's really what makes it a larger industry. There are also these things called, um, uh, in, 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 in development parlance, called mitigation. So when you build something that has uh, a potential adverse impact on the environment, oftentimes what the builders are required to do is they're required to mitigate or make up for that adverse impact. And they sometimes will do that by uh, restoring a very similar habitat, but in another area. And in water, this is particularly acute in Northern California, given that uh, Southern California gets a lot of its water from Northern California. And so there's just an entire industry behind this that it's important for black folks to really understand that it's here. Um, They're good jobs. They're phenomenal entrepreneurial opportunities. It's an opportunity to, to get outside, to work outside, but also to earn some real real cash. So how does, um, you know, from the perspective of an equity lens, how does your work potentially impact that, that model? Yeah, I mean, for us, we're so proud to have acquired our first land uh, property, which is 650 acres. Um, and we think about it as really rectifying historical wrongs. Um, There's a number that I think is really staggering when we think about the amount of black land loss. It's upwards of 326 billion that would have been passed down 306, I'm sorry, $326 billion for, that sounds crazy. Yes. When it comes to land that was lost within the black community, whether through farming or lack of access to, uh, you know, funding from banks, the Jim Crow era, there's a lot of reasons why uh, land was lost. And so when we're thinking about the opportunity to um, achieve that or regain that, the 40 Acre Conservation League is really allowing others to tap into this growing outdoor economy. And as Daryl had mentioned, there's so many ways in from being a scientist, an economist, a forester, um, consultants, uh, so many of them go into really helping us understand how we can maintain this land uh, to um, play into what the state's initiative is, which is a 30 by 30 initiative to 
um, conserve 30% of the state's land and waterways, but doing it in a culturally inclusive way. And so there's ways to bring more entrepreneurs into that space and really show them what conservation can look like. So it starts with 650 acres um, and what happened, you know, what is, where do you start with those acres? What are you doing with it? Yeah, so it's it's been a, a very long process. Yeah, um, <laughs> you know, Daryl hinted at what we had to do even to um, be approved for the funding, which required a lot of research, right? Understanding what is on the land currently, what is the current state of it, what do we need to do to, again, reach those conservation goals? Um, and that's that's just the first part of it, which requires not only research, but, you know, funding to to keep that process going. And so, you know, this year we were awarded $3 million for that land acquisition. And that was really the first step. It was a huge milestone. We're so proud of it. But that's really just the beginning. As we move into the planning stages, everything that we talked about and honestly dreamed about in terms of what we want to have on this land from, you know, outside of conservation, figuring out ways to make it a recreational space that people of, of all backgrounds feel welcome to, this planning phase allows us to work with scientists to see what's feasible. So on the property, there is a 30-acre lake. Um, there's an opportunity to figure out what fishing, you know, could, could be there. There's great views of, you know, mountains. There's plenty of hiking trails. But we need to make sure that the area is safe, that the brush that is there from um, that needs to be maintained is cleared in enough way that people will feel safe. We also want to really think about ways to educate more people on, you know, what it's like to live in the outdoors. So does that look like a lodge? Does that look like a nature center? Is that a place where people could, you know, camp and hang out? All of that is what we're figuring out in the planning stages now, um, planning phase. And then once we feel like we're in the best place to move forward, it's really, you know, implementation of it all. We are talking uh, 40 acre conservation league. If you got a question or commentary, this is a perfect time to call 800-920-1580. Um, there's so much to ask, you know, is this 650 acres the seed or is it the whole plant? Um, what, you know, where where do we go from there? How does um, entrepreneurial uh, ambition fit with the conservation model? All that and more when we come forward on KBLA Talk 1580. We wish you a holiday season filled with peace and love and a new year rich with blessings. Mask up and stay safe. From all of us at KBLA Talk 1580. Thanks for waking up with Dominique DePrima on KBLA Talk 1580. Uh, yes, indeed. We do appreciate you. Jade Stevens is with me in the studio. Attorney Daryl Lucian on the phone there with the 40-acre Conservation League concept. You talked about conservation, recreation, and economic <coughs> excuse me, participation in this sort of great outdoors, right? Um, the conservation, you now have these 650 acres. Is that the first parcel of many, or is that the, you know, the first step in a much more developed, or uh, developed might not be the right word, um, a much more, um, you know, inviting space? Yeah, I mean, for us, it's definitely the first of many. When we came up with this concept, the idea is that we wanted to acquire land that, uh, 
is really an opportunity for us to provide more culturally relevant and inclusive experiences. Um, and so the way that we think about our properties that we go after is we want to find land that is nearby national and state parks, um, ideally in an area that we know the space needs to be protected, but also they need to be within 100 and 150 miles from major air or major urban areas. So thinking like Los Angeles, San Francisco, the Bay where Area. Where black people are. There you go. You see where I'm going with this. But it's important, right? Like if you're asking someone to go on a trip to see um, this land, which is in the immigrant gap area, if we say it's three to four hours away, you know these people are not going to want to drive there. They want to go somewhere that is nearby. So yes, I'm saying 150 miles, but really we're thinking of a place where you can get there within two hours at yeah. max, right? Yeah. Um, that's a weekend trip. That's a place that feels within reach. It feels like an area that's a little different from your everyday, uh, you know, day-to-day scenery. Um, and you can really go enjoy something and come back and see this as being something that's in reach. And so that's our our blueprint in terms of what we go after. And so the land that we acquired is in the Immigrant Gap area. It's about an hour from Sacramento. It's right along the lines of the Tahoe National Forest. So that was the perfect place for us to target. And um, we're continuing to look for land opportunities that fit that same description. Attorney Lucien, who actually, you know, we I've talked to a few land trusts, different, not like yours, but different kinds of land trusts, mostly in cities. Um, who owns land in a land trust? How, you know, how does that work? Is it, not, is it considered privately held? How is it funded? Yeah, so for the, for the most part, most land trusts are organized um, as nonprofits. And so essentially the nonprofit ownership, it's technically private. It's not public, um, but it is not owned necessarily by any one individual. It's owned by that nonprofit entity. So it would be controlled by the board of directors of that nonprofit. And how is it funded? For the most part, land trusts rely commonly on a combination of government funding, usually state uh, and or federal funding, and then also rely on, you know, contributions from individuals, which is which is often why, um, you know, the land trust space is not very, very diverse. Of, of all the things that we as, you know, black Americans, black Californians have on our mind as far as our discretionary spending is concerned, um, donating to a land trust is usually not the number one thing. But when you tie it into what Jade was saying about the, you know, more than $300 billion of land loss that black America has suffered over the last 100 years. I think the organization is really in a prime position to say, hey, you know what, there's an opportunity to acquire land um, and to use that land to reduce barriers to participation in any number of outdoor industries that require, you know, you to have a lot of land, whether that is um, farming or ranching, uh, whether it, it's it's outdoor recreation, like was mentioned earlier, which is a very large and prosperous economy, or or, or fishing, camping. Um, there's there's a lot there, um, but usually that number one barrier is 
you got to own land or you have to have access or control, site control of land in order to even consider really thinking about entering those industries. And so that's in part why these industries are not as diverse, because we don't have large land holdings like that and are largely um, out of reach of you know, African-American entrepreneurs. Yeah, it's so it's so wild. I um, had the opportunity to travel to Zimbabwe this year, and mm. it's the same issue with all of these beautiful, great, um, amazing outdoor spaces in Mosiotunia Falls, commonly known as Victoria Falls. They are controlled mostly by people in Germany and in Europe uh, that own this land, and they pay the indigenous uh, black people mm. there, you know, twenty dollars a day. Mm. Um, so. You know, how do you ensure then, though, that uh, just a minute here till news traffic and sports, that this is a black owned, uh, you know, it is owned by a nonprofit. So conceivably that could turn over. Right. Well, I mean, the way that we think about it in terms of ensuring um, the cultural relevancy is when we get to the point of providing programming. Right. There's multiple steps that we'll need to take to get people that are here in Los Angeles and the Bay Area out to these amazing properties. And so the way that I think about it is going with people that look like you to fish, to camp overnight, really roughing it, you know, in a tent outdoors with someone that looks like you. I can't tell you how many times someone has asked me when it comes to, you know, camping, like, you know, is there going to be a place for me to, you know, uh, plug my phone in or, you know, I can't get my hair wet, right? If I, if I go play around in this lake, these are things that we joke around about, but like those are serious considerations of someone that's grown up in a highly urbanized area and realizing what it would be like to be outdoors with access to nothing. And so that programming um, that we'll have will help people really uh, step through to that. All right. News, traffic and sports and continuing the conversation on KBLA talk 1580. More of First Things First with Dominique DePrima when we come forward. This is KBLA Talk 1580, where hate loses and love wins. And uh, we're talking with Jade Stevens and attorney Daryl Lucien um, of 40 Acre Conservation League. Jade, St- Jade Stevens is the president. Uh, so many questions. I'm going to try to get them in here. When you talk about a you know, a land trust when you talk about this, this really new kind of model that you guys are creating uh, with the, the idea of both conservation, recreation, and an economic um, entitlement piece, which many of us don't even look at in that context. How do you balance that, right? I mean, you, you got to have money to do anything with the land and running a, a park that doesn't even have one single store on it costs money. Um, and, and I'm sure there's a lot more to it than that when you're in the conservation space, but that economic driver can be, uh, a problem in terms of the environmental impact. So how do you balance those and how do you even support a project like this on an ongoing basis? Yeah. I mean, every day it's, it's something new. And just like you said, trying to balance all three of those pillars that really uphold our mission is what we strive to find a balance with every day. Uh, When it comes to environmental justice, you know, finding ways to meet the state's conservation goals, there is a lot of work that goes into that. Uh, Thinking about 
the current state of the land, right? It's in an area that uh, is considered a, a high risk for wildfires. And so being able to rely on our scientists and experts and team to go out and really direct us on what's best to preserve this land is one thing that we are always focused on. But at the same time, you know, focused on being focused on also finding ways to bring more communities of color outdoors, you know, we really need to look to our partners who have been in this space for years to see what's working. What are some of the best practices to not only educate uh, those that are not um, as familiar with exploring the outdoors, but like, how do we do it in a way that makes them feel connected to it? And those two specifically, um, environmental and recreational justice, those are things that we think are so close together because once someone is invested in the outdoors, someone that has not only memories, um, but like recent events out there, it, it becomes a little bit easier when the people that you're trying to bring out there understand how important it is to protect the land. Um, but the economic justice piece, really showing how there's um, an opportunity through land ownership, through the jobs, the economy that like defines what the outdoor economy is, is something that we are really looking to translate in different ways to communities because I, I think many might consider it as only being farming, for example. But as we've shared you know, earlier, there's opportunities through scientists. Um, there's opportunities through literally running a nature center. There's just so many opportunities there that we really want to peel back the layers on for people to understand. And, and that's, that's just an everyday challenge that we, we work through. Yeah, you know, we, we had, uh, back in October, we had uh, the Jones family. Michael and JT Jones were on. Uh, they're working with the group Where's My Land. They are um, fighting to get back their land, um, which was stripped, with the, stripped from them um, in, in Alabama precisely because of water rights. Apparently there was a well here which um, was, was supplying Huntsville, and it belonged to black people, and they were bamboozled, threatened, pushed off that land. Um, and so it really makes you think not just about the actual acreage, but what that acreage has in potential um, that becomes more, more or less coveted based on the conditions on the ground in, in the nation. Um, Attorney Lucien, talk to me about how that, you know, your work around water rights plays a role here. Well, yeah, I think um, that's an excellent example. Look, the most one of the most renowned settlements in the United States is a place called Allensworth. It's an hour drive north of Bakersfield. It was created in 1908 as the first city to be established as an African-American enclave in California. And, you know, maybe less than 10 years later, it might have been the town was decimated by white farmers and corporate interests. And, and what was that weapon of choice? It was water. Um, and that was because, effectively, the town's initial water supply came from a nearby river. Um, but after a few years later, um, what happened is that river was diverted uh, by powerful white farmers who were trying to irrigate their own crops. The impact was that it cut off the town's water supply. Fortunately, Allensworth had a backup plan. They were going to dig wells and drill for groundwater. But the company that sold them the land and promised to help them dig the wells 
never actually honored the contract, although they did dig a number of wells for a majority white community only a few miles away. And so when you think about the context of water rights um, in African Americans, it, it, it's extremely important. Um, one, because water is life, right? Water is health, uh, as, we, as we've seen more recently, uh, viewing cases like uh, the Flint, Michigan, and Jackson, Mississippi crisis. But water is very much important to wealth as well, again, because of, um, and if I guess we were, if we were to use the 40-acre conservation league example from what I understand about their land, they have a number of creeks um, that uh, flow through their property in addition to the lake. And effectively, what that creates potentially is an opportunity for them to explore how do we restore these habitats for you know amphibians, fish, frogs, whatever the case may be. And as they're contemplating that, um, there are multiple buckets of funding, uh, public funding, government funding, and, and other types of grant funding that will help them do that. All right? So if the restoration effort is a $2, 3000000 million effort in total, uh, I, I suppose the next question they may want to ask is, where are the black restoration companies, um, given that it's an all-black land trust? that are going to do this work? Where are they? Do they exist? Um, and can we bring them on? And do they have the qualifications that, that would fit this need? There, there's so much sort of tied into it. But to get back to your original point about water rights, um, you know, it, it's an enormous part of, of land ownership. Just like you said earlier, Dominique, when it comes to building, if you're going to build a subdivision, you can't, you won't get approved to build, you know, attract the homes unless you can identify uh, not just a water source, but a sustainable, a reasonably sustainable water source. And so you're either going to try and um, tie in with a local utility that offers water, or you may attempt to, you know, drill your own wells or something, but all of that has to be signed off. And so water just really becomes a really significant part of, 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 of wealth building when you're thinking about land and how you're going to use that land um, to, to, to monetize. Yeah, I mean, in the case of the, the Jones family in Huntsville, the city offered them 900 bucks for the land with the well. When they turned down the offer, they condemned the wells, uh, cl- claimed it was unfit for human consumption, took it from the Jones family, and then built a pump house on the location. So hopefully they'll be uh, similar to Bruce's Beach kind of story. But, it, it you know, it was only recently that I, you know, connected the dots um, in understanding that, you know, working with this group here in L.A. called Groundswell, that um, if you are trying to build affordable housing or, or housing for the unhoused here in, in Los Angeles or any big urban area, you may, the, 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 uh, Sierra Club may have veto power over your project, even though they have zero interest or are zero percent stakeholders in the welfare of that uh, urban community. Well, th- there are a number of laws that I think that are on the books. One of the most, um, I'll say the, the one that is often the most controversial is a law called the California Environmental Quality Act. Um, 
It's sometimes referred to in shorthand uh, by the name CEQA. And basically what the law requires is numerous, I mean, sometimes dozens of studies to assess what the environmental impacts of a specific project are. And so you need to identify the environmental impacts. And then the project proponent is usually faced with an opportunity to try and see if they can mitigate the project. Can we move the project somewhere else? Can we lessen its impact in order to mitigate the impact? Um, however, oftentimes the people that you hire to perform these studies for you, whether it's a traffic study, whether it's a biological study or, or, in, or a water availability study, uh, they often don't always disagree with each other. And so what you will have is you will have experts disagreeing. And if a group like Sierra Club or someone else believes that there's an impact um, that is not fully being captured, articulated, or hasn't been studied correctly, um, the law invites them effectively to file a lawsuit, which will then you know, stop the project in its tracks. Uh, until that's ultimately resolved. And so I, I got to tip my hat to the 40 Acre Conservation League and, and Jade. They've, they've got a, a bit of a path um, ahead of them in, like you said, trying to balance what is our impact on the environment if we invite, you know, all these black folks up to the mountains. How do we, how do we mitigate that impact? Are there any sensitive or endangered species um, on site, and, and from what Jade shared with me, there's none on the site, uh, but there's this uh, there's a, 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 a an endangered species maybe about a half mile away. So they've got to be thinking about all of these things before they really even get to the black empowerment phase, which is, you know, we've got this land, we see these economic opportunities that are available, you know, how do we you know, how, how do they introduce uh, these opportunities to entrepreneurial African-Americans that may have an interest in participating in these markets? Yeah. When we come forward, I want to talk about what that looks like. Like, what are the obstacles that you're facing? How could community play a role if they can uh, in, you know, supporting the work uh, that you're doing? And also, like, when do you expect folks to be able to come and Recreate. Is that a word? Recreate. <laughs> Jade Stevens and Attorney Daryl Lucien are with me. And we're talking about a unique model, the 40 Acre Conservation League on KBLA Talk 1580. She's reclaiming her time on KBLA Talk 1580. More first things first with Dominic DePrima when we come forward. Find a righteous range and don't be afraid to say what you see. We're KBLA Talk 1580. You know, so much talk about uh, the the ground we lose as, as black people and a lot of conversation around gentrification and us being pushed out, pushed away. That is why I love talking to innovators and I feel like there is a real movement um, from folks that are trying to get repair and restitution, but also people that are finding innovative ways for us to show up, to have ownership, to have a stake. Uh, it seems like 40 Acre Conservation League is one of those. Uh, Jade Stevens is the president of that organization and attorney Daryl Lucian also joining us. So uh, attorney Lucian was talking about the studies and all of the various things that you have to have, not just for a development in a city, but for a project like your 
uh, parcel of land and mm-hmm. the many more that will come. Mm-hmm. How do we help you navigate those obstacles? Because really they could be obstacles, right? Yeah, I mean, I'd say that the two biggest challenges that we've had have been one around funding. Um, We've had so many attempts with submitting grant applications, which is necessary to fund the different phases that we move through to uh, acquire, um, develop and maintain the land. And so things that we've experienced in the beginning is, you know, a lot of skepticism um, around an innovative idea like this. We understand that this is something that may be unfamiliar, but we've um, found that after we acquired the land and received that funding, many people think that that's it. And and that's not it. You know, the $3 million was meant to acquire the property, but there's so many studies that we need to carry out through um, our biologists, our ecologists, um, architects, and and those that understand land use, and that's not free. Um, and so we rely on, you know, funding from the state uh, grants and really just multiple sources that can help us continue to move that along. So, you know, we're always open to receiving new opportunities that we can consider for funding. The other biggest thing is really just being new to this space, being the first comes again, like with skepticism. Many are not uh, so sure about the ideas that we have when it comes to being able to acquire a land that protects our habitat, but also is mindful of bringing more people of color outdoors. And so we've had instances where we've talked to, you know, state officials, to, you know, partners in the conservation industry that really don't understand what we're trying to do and may not have been as supportive. And so to your question of, you know, what can the community do? Um, You know, I think back to the hearing that we had uh, with the Wildlife Conservation Board, and we had uh, upwards of 75, 80 people in there supporting us with signs coming up to, you know, talk on our behalf to say that this idea is necessary. It needs to be supported and it needs to be taken seriously. So if you're listening, um, please follow us on social media. We're on Twitter. Um, we're on Facebook. You can even go to our website to learn more about ways to stay in contact with us. But we need more voices to say that we deserve to be in this space. Um, and if you want to get involved or learn how there are ways to get um, involved in more economic opportunities, you know, Daryl mentioned to it, to it earlier about having black restoration companies, but we are looking to really diversify that pipeline. So if you have an expertise that could benefit um, an opportunity in the outdoor economy and what comes with, you know, maintaining the land, we really want to reach back and pull everyone forward through this oppor- through this project. Um, Daryl, what do you want to add on to that as far as the ways we can support this project and, you know, and educate ourselves more moving forward? Because it sounds like from water, which, you know, I think will be an increasingly loud conversation in the next decade to um, to this, you know, understanding of conservation, this understanding of recreation and, and how we have been excluded. Sometimes it's a self, um, self-imposed self exclusion, but many times it's not. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. What else do, should we know, Attorney Lucien? I think it's important. Um, I think it's important sometimes to just, to just sort of think and, and, and reflect. And I like where 40 Acre Conservation League is going because what they're effectively saying is 
hey, we we belong out here. Um, we belong we we belong in terms of ownership of agricultural lands, in terms of ownership of timberlands, in terms of ownership of beach lands and our coastal lands. I think the biggest thing to tack onto what Jade said is to just you know stay in touch, go go on the website, follow the uh, sign up for the the newsletter, follow follow the Twitter and all of that because. Um, there's there's a real movement here that is emerging to really democratize access to land and to build up um, the black land IQ, to build up the black water IQ um, as a as a form of empowerment. And so it, it's a it's a really special opportunity and, and undertaking. Mm. I think. Uh... You know, it, it sounds so funny when you say raise our a land IQ or our water <laughs> IQ when we've had it, you know, literally submerged in lakes, burned to the ground, stolen from us, bamboozled from us. It's like we had it. Absolutely. But, mm-hmm. you know, so we, we've had some IQ. We've had this history. Um, and so it's almost like reclaiming more than, than gaining, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that that's really what it's about because we've been so, I think, again divorced from it. Um, I, I think I was I was told a story. Um, it was earlier this year about a young black woman who went through a farm academy program, and she wanted her own land, and she was farming, and it was expensive, and she couldn't find anything. Um, certainly nothing even close to within uh, the parameters that Jade outlined in terms of being just outside of a, of an urban area. So she decided to buy, I think it was 50, 60 acres in Mariposa County, which if you don't know where that is, that's sort of one of the main counties that houses Yosemite National Park. Okay, 60 seconds here, Attorney Lucien. And basically what happened is... Um, she had such a, a bad experience sort of in that environment and in that ambiance as a black woman that she just, she, she sold the land and left. And I think, you know, mm. this is a real opportunity. This is a real opportunity to, to, to sort of combat that with um, a little bit more muscle. So appreciate the 40 acre conservation league and what they're doing. Thank you so much. Um, tell us, is, you guys have a website or. Yes, uh, 40 Acre Conservation League. Uh, you can find us on Twitter at 40 Acre League. Uh, not hard to find. Please reach out. Um, and we're, we're happy to bring everyone along for the ride and share updates as we, as we move through this. Thank you. All right. Well, Jade Stevens and Daryl Lucian, thank you so much. We got to go. Tavis Smiley is up next. My quote for the day, Frederick Douglass says, find out just what any people will quietly submit to, and you have the exact measure of injustice and wrong which will be imposed upon them. Think about that. I'm Dominique DePrima. History is right now, and we are making it together. Visit us on the socials, KBLA 1580 on every platform. Follow me, DePrima Radio, D-I-P-R-I-M-A, and then radio, like, follow, subscribe. We do appreciate you. Until tomorrow, go outside. Kiss some sun. One love.